You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, Like the video said and Sarah said, my name is Zach, and I'm on staff here. And we are thrilled that you've joined us this morning as we're continuing in our series, our year-long series, The Whole Story, where we've been studying book by book all the way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and looking at each book individually and then God's redemptive plan as a whole. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of James. Um, But before we do that, before we dive in, I wanted to uh, recognize something that our church holds very near and dear to our hearts. Uh, Today, we get to gather with other churches nationally and observe Orphan Sunday. And Orphan Sunday was started for the purpose of inviting the church to care for orphans worldwide and to stand for children and family in the U.S. foster care system. And so here at City Church, we have many families who have either in the past fostered or are currently fostering and standing in that gap or have adopted, and we're beyond grateful for these families. And to support them, our kids team has actually done something really cool. They've started a program called Foster Cruise, and this is a way where every City Church member can walk alongside our families within the church and support them in their foster care journeys, in their adoptive journeys, uh, in 24-7 wraparound support. And so while we're not all called to foster or adopt, uh, we fully believe that all of us can be part of blessing our families who are doing that. And even in the book of James, James 1.27 talks about this. It says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So we seek to live that out here at City Church Please pray with me, and then we'll dive into James. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to come together. God, we thank you for the many families who have stepped in to care for orphans, God, whether that's through foster care or adoption. We pray that you would raise more of us up, God, that the need is there, God. Please use us to help accomplish your will in that. Please help us to be a support for our families that are fostering and adopting. Please bless us and be with us as we go through your Bible, the book of James. God, please help us um, just open our eyes and and our hearts and our ears to what you would have us take away today. We love you and thank you for all the blessings you've given us. In your name I pray, amen. So now we turn to the book of James. James is Jesus' half-brother. And this letter is a little different from many of the books in the New Testament that we've studied in the last couple weeks in that it's not dedicated or written to a specific congregation. James, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, this massive church, uh, he composes this letter to the Jewish Christian, uh, I guess, church body as a whole. And it's it's a letter to believers that are facing trials, that are lacking in self-control in both their speech and in their actions. Uh, They're being swayed by false teachings. But one of the main themes in James, it looks at the relationship between our faith and works, right? And it concludes that works aren't necessary for being saved. And we see this in a couple weeks ago in Galatians, right? The church was swayed by this false gospel of you must do this, a man-made action to inherit salvation. So James is saying works aren't necessary for being saved, but they're necessary for showing that you are saved. And so this letter, James teaches of the many characteristics that our faith shows, and how it's played out through the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. 
right? And that's solely based on our faith in Jesus. And so the common thread of the book is that the idea that our faith, it works, and then a working faith affects those around us, right? In our sphere of influence, in our, in our community here in Tallahassee throughout the world, because faith moves Christians to obedience, right? It moves them to lead Bible studies, to give to charities, to tithe to the local church, to foster, to adopt, to tutor. The list goes on and on. Faith moves Christians to make the gospel known all throughout the world. And James is going to encourage us in this. He's going to share some wisdom with us. Then he's going to push us to action in our walk with the Lord. So as we take a closer look at the book, we see many themes regarding our faith and how Christians must live out their faith, being, as James will say, and we'll read about it, being doers of the word, doers of what we read in Scripture, not just hearers. And today we're going to look specifically at three characteristics of a Christian's faith that James lays out for us. The first is that faith perseveres. The second is that faith obeys. And I kind of cheated on the last one, but the last one is faith submits and lasts. It's three. Um, But let's jump into the very, very beginning of the book of James. In chapter one, And we're going to take a closer look on the first characteristic of a Christian's faith, and that is that faith perseveres. So please open your Bible with me, James 1. On there it starts in verse 2, but I'm going to start in verse 1. So James 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the audience, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Then he jumps right in. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you, to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea that's driven and tossed by the winds. And skip down with me to verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Right out of the gate, he talks about trials in a believer's life. But we know from reading this section of Scripture that God is sovereign over those trials, right? He's in control of them. James tells us that trials we face are never out of God's control and that even better that he accomplishes his purpose through them. So that's when James says, consider it a great joy. It's this command. It addresses how we think of trials. It's not about feelings because trials don't bring a smile to our face. They're not like fun in and of themselves. But we realize that trials are not joyful in themselves, but they are joyful when we realize that they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. So here James is encouraging these believers, encouraging us to embrace trials, not for what they are, but for what God is accomplishing through them. So James comes right out the gate and says, you will experience trials. And then he gives us in this passage three different causes, three different reasons that cause us to rejoice in the midst of trials, three reasons why we can rejoice. And the first one is we grow, we learn to grow in God's likeness. 
right? God's goal in our lives is to glorify himself through us and also also to foster growth and maturity in him. So if our goal is to know God and to be conformed to his likeness and to grow to love him more and be more like him, then we can take joy in trials because we know no matter how tough these trials are, they're moving us towards our goal. And Paul says this in Romans 5, starting in verse 3, says, not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, in our trials, because we know that they produce endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And this hope is not going to disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in trials, we experience this growth in godliness like we could never experience in any other way. When we set our sights on Scripture and fix our eyes on God and the goal of growing in knowledge and maturity in Him, then trials will be a joy to us because they'll teach us how to know, how to love, and how to trust Him more. The second thing James says, how we can find joy in the midst of trials, is that we learn to trust in God's wisdom And this is uh, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives it generously. I mean, that has to be one of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture, that God gives wisdom to his children generously. He says we must ask for it, right? God, your wisdom is greater than mine. Your timing is greater than my timing. God, please give me your wisdom, wisdom on how to handle and maneuver this trial. And then we have faith, right? That God is true to his word. And the third reason we should rejoice in trials, James says, is that we learn to live for God's reward. We learn to live for his reward. And we see this explained in verse 12, right? Blessed is the one who endures trials because he has stood the test and he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This crown is a symbol of receiving the glorious reward of eternal life, right? At the end of our trials on earth, God meets us with eternal life. So we consider it a joy, trials a joy, because they remind me and you that we are living for the reward to come, right? And 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says, our momentary, right, not long-lasting, our momentary light affliction here on earth is producing an abundantly incomparable eternal weight of glory, right? And, and Dean has said this before on a Sunday that the worst thing that could ever happen to those who are Christians on this earth, it's already happened to us, is that we were once separated from God by our sin. So we know if that's the worst thing, well, then no trial, event, affliction that this world can throw at us is going to eclipse the state of a sinful human before an almighty God. So during trials, we must continually go back to Scripture and dig deep into the promises of God. So James concludes, he's, hey, be encouraged in trials because God has saved us from our sin, right? And if he saved us from our sin, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will see us through our sorrow and trials. I mean, think about the truth of the gospel, right? That God who conquers sin and suffering through the death of his son, 
Jesus, so that one day you and I can consider it a pure joy when we face trials. Because no trial we will ever endure on this earth will come close to what Christ endured on the cross on our behalf. And that our joy, our strength, our hope in trials is that our God will either see us through to the end of the trial or into glory with Him in heaven. So as we continue looking at chapter 1, right at the beginning he says you will endure trials, and then into chapter 1 and through the rest of the book, James instructs us what to do in the midst of trials. What do we do when trials are around us? Well, he instructs us to obey, that our faith in God and his promises in Scripture spurs us into obedience, and that's the second characteristic of faith, is that it obeys, faith obeys. And James kind of gives us two things to do in trials, and they seem elementary, and, and they may be, but I would challenge us in our way of thinking in this, if they're elementary, then why are we so prone to wander from these things? And the first thing James tells us to do in the midst of trials is to go to the Word of God, is to go to the Word of God. Look with me further down in chapter 1, we're going to be 19 through 25. The heading of the section is hearing and doing the word. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. <laughs> For he looks at himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But be the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. It is not a forget for hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. In this section, right, trials will come. What do we do in the midst of trials? James says, go to the word. I guess this is a sermon of threes. It just dawned on me because everything's a three. Trinity, I guess I'm, I'm fine there. But James gives us three, three instructions on how we go to the word. And the first one, is that we receive the word humbly. Is when we go to the word of God in the midst of a trial, we receive it humbly. In verse 19, James says that we're to be quick to hear, that we're to be slow to speak, slow to become angry. There's this sense of great humility being painted here. As we approach Scripture, we know that the word of God is infallible and has total authority in our lives, right? It shapes our action our speech, our decision-making. It rubs our sinful nature and corrects us. Look at what second, or it's not going to be on the screen, but 2 Timothy 3 says this about how Scripture molds us. It says all Scripture, so all of this is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So James calls us to be humble as we approach the Scriptures. And we know through the promises of Scripture that God is the one who puts His law in our hearts. He sends His Spirit to change our hearts, and this is what moves us, right? It's the Spirit of God. God has planted His Word in His people, and our hearts find life in His Word. It's like the the blood that runs through our veins. We need it to survive. We need God's Word. The language that James uses in this section is strong. It emphasizes how we are not saved by our works at all, but we find our salvation by receiving the Word because God plants His Word in our hearts, which flips them. Every part of us changes, and it moves us to action, and that is the heart of the book of James, is that we put our faith that we have into action, and we can only do this by the Word at work in our hearts, the Word of the Lord that gives us life. And the second way James tells us to approach Scripture is we meditate on the Word continuously. And this point is closely intertwined with what we just looked at. In verse 25, James talks about a man who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom. The, the phrase looks intently kind of stood out to me. It reminded me of when I was a kid and I would like catch lizards and I would just like put them like this close to my face and look so intently at its tail, at its paw, at its feet, whatever you call it, its feet. Uh, and then I would like take the little neck thing that's all colorful and pull it out. And then I would like stick it to my earlobe. It's just something we, I did as a kid. But he's saying as a little kid, that that's just what stuck in my mind, look so intently at things. He's saying gaze upon scripture like that, right? Look at it, read it, study it apply it, doing what it says, not being content with a little bit of word from God here or there for the day, but to dive in deep to absorb the word. And the person who absorbs and looks intently into the perfect law of God, James says, will not forget what he sees, will not forget what he reads. In verses 23 and 24 are kind of funny to me where James contrasts this kind of man who absorbs the word and doesn't forget it and does it, right, with someone who doesn't remember the word. And I've created this bad habit over the last year where as I leave my house every morning and I hit the garage door button and the garage door closes and I back out, by the time I get to the second house past mine in the neighborhood, I forget if I close the garage door. I just don't even think about it. And I'm not lying, like 80% of the time I make a U-turn and turn around and go check. So now I have this system where as I hit the garage door close, audibly, my neighbors think I'm crazy. I'm saying to myself, the garage door is closing. The garage door is closing right now. It's helped me. And so, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. And like, I'm like, man, I, I just need to concentrate on this more. But if something like that, that's so routine in my life that I do it every day, if I forget that I do it literally 15 seconds after I do it, I, I read this. And I felt instantly convicted because if, if I have this approach with Scripture that I read every day, that I, I'm in it and then close it and then forget it, I mean, that's as, as ridiculous as the garage door clicker. And James points that out. And he says, don't be like the man who looks at himself in a mirror and looks away and forgets what he looks like. He says, don't do this with the Word of God. Don't forget it. Psalm 19, 10 says the word of God is more 
precious than gold. And so the question is, is do we value Scripture to the point of making it a priority to abide in? I think that's a great question we can all ask ourselves. Because if all we do is listen to the Word on a Sunday together, gather together, which is a good thing, but then forget it when we leave this building throughout the week, well, we're just like the fool that James talks about in this chapter. So we must be in the Word. We must meditate on it. And then the third uh, thing James points us to do when we dive into Scripture is to obey the Word wholeheartedly is to obey the word wholeheartedly. And if you uh, probably turn the page to chapter, or yeah, to chapter 2, verses 14, we're going to look at 14, 15, and 16, then skip to 26. We obey the word wholeheartedly. Read with me in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? He asks that question, and then he gives this example. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and you know this, and one of them says to them, well, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, well, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. And then verse 26, for just as the body is without the spirit, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This chunk of scripture added with one we read earlier, James 1.22, where it says, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves, in my opinion, are some of the theme verses of the entire book of James. Because we have not really listened to the word if we have not obeyed what it says. Because the bottom line is that this word, the word of God, it evokes action. The power of the gospel in a believer's life, it elicits a response from us. And if there's no action from the word, then there's clearly been no acceptance or value placed on that word. So we must obey the word. So backtracking for a second, James comes out in chapter 1, says there will be trials. And then he gives us two, way, two things to do in the midst of trials, to go to God's word and then I, I told you it was elementary, but James is saying you're not good at it, reminding us to go back. And the second thing he says to do is to go to God in prayer. James instructs us to go to God in prayer. Flip over with me to chapter 5. In verse 13, 13 through 16, the section title is Effective Prayer. It says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and then pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. This passage tells us so many great things about prayer. Who should pray? Verse 1, anyone. When should you pray? He says through the good times and the bad times, whether you're being obedient or not obedient, in sickness and in health, through smooth times in your life, through times of turmoil and trial, Christians are called to pray. And James also points out another reason for prayer is to confess 
our sin to God. That's one of the many blessings that God has given us is prayer, is His channel of communication to talk to Him. So confessing, right, asking God for forgiveness is done through prayer. And if you've ever done that, it's a very humbling experience to admit fault and failure to our God, but we can rest in His promise that He's faithful to forgive. Right, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We also see in this passage that James instructs us to pray earnestly. Right, to pray in a way that we know that God is listening, that He cares for what we have to say, having faith that His will is being done. Verse 16 So the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in effect. Righteousness, right? A right standing, clean, without sin before God. I want to be righteous, right? If I read that scripture and said, well, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful. Okay, I want to be righteous. How do I attain this righteousness? Well, it's only attained through faith and the work of Jesus. Taking our sin washing us, making us righteous before a holy God. And Christians, we know that our prayers are heard. The communication that God allows us to have with Him is a precious gift. And over and over again in Scripture, we see the call, an invitation to go to the Lord in all seasons of life, in all circumstances in prayer. So we've seen that our faith perseveres, right? Our faith obeys. And then lastly, we look at chapter four in James and we'll see that our faith submits and it lasts. When we live out our faith and we submit to the teachings and authority of the Lord and his word, this more often than not is gonna put us at odds with the world. Read with me in chapter four, starting in verse 4. He comes out swinging. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intently, intensely? but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because of that, he says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says that to say, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Friendship with the world and hostility towards God, this isn't something that we only see in the book of James. We see Paul say the same thing in Galatians as he's ending the book of Galatians by comparing and contrasting the habits of living in the flesh and then living in life in Christ, in the Spirit. Galatians 5, starting in 16. Paul writes, And then, I say then, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what's against the flesh, and they are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he dives into each of those. Well, what does it look like to live in the, for the desires of the flesh? He says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh, he says, are obvious. And he gives us a big old list. Sexual morality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and then puts a blanket statement in anything similar to that. And he says, I'm warning you about these things, as I've warned you before, so this isn't the first time they heard it, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he turns to the fruit that comes from living in the Spirit that God gives us. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ have been crucified to the flesh and its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, there's an action that's evoked here, right? Let us keep in let us also keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another or envying one another this living in the flesh that both James and Paul talk about here Jesus puts them to death on the cross so that when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence of the spirit what does that mean to live in dependence of the spirit that god i need you right i need you to work in my life I need you to make me more like Jesus. I can't do it on my own. I'm submitting to you. Well, then his life, Jesus' life, becomes ours, and God gives us the Holy Spirit, and it produces fruit in us. But like Paul said, this fruit is not automatic. It requires a cultivation. It requires intentionality, right? We must learn to run from our old habits of the world and pursue Jesus. James kind of gives us instruction on what to do with that, right? He says, read your Bible, pray, be in community, live missionally, be baptized. We've had an awesome season of baptism here. Mark Dever, a pastor up in D.C., said, baptism is the easiest command that Jesus will ever give you as a Christian. So through the Spirit, Jesus makes us into people who love God, who love others, and fulfill the mission of the gospel. And living in that way, what James is saying, what Paul is saying, that is what puts us at odds with the world. But we know it's worth it. That friendship with the world that creates hostility towards God, they cannot coexist, right? And friendship with the world comes from the sinful desires of the flesh. It's motivated by worldly temporal pleasures, and this comes from a self-centeredness that says, my name be honored, my will be done. And this friendship with the world, it results in a spiritual idolatry towards the perfect and holy God. That's why James in 4.4, where he comes out swinging, he says, you adulterous people, is because they have tried to attach themselves with the world and to God. So James is saying, instead of running to friendship and acceptance from the world, we turn and we run to the lordship of Christ. And this relationship is not birthed in sinfulness, 
of the desires of the flesh, but it comes from the gracious desire of God. And it's motivated by a longing for eternal satisfaction. This results in the submission to God's authority and thus spurs us to action and works in our life. So how do we come to understand all of this? And there's so much more in this awesome book that the law of the Lord brings both freedom but also obedience that God commands, what James instructs us to do through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to receive the word humbly, the word planted in you, to focus on it, to remember it, to hide it in our hearts, to do what it says. And as we do this, this word which was given initially gave us life. As Christians, it will work in us and through us, and it will move us to obey God's command. And that stems out of our love for Him and what Jesus did on the cross. So a faith that works that James is talking about here is only possible by the gracious gospel of Jesus and is aimed toward the greater glory of Jesus in making His name great. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, once again for this time that we can come together and worship you through uh, your word and through prayer and through singing. God, we thank you for this book of James. We pray that as we leave today that we would continue to read it and to study it. And God, that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers deceiving ourselves, God, but we would read and study and dive into your word, and it would change our lives and change Tallahassee. Please continue to be with us through the rest of this service. God, thank you for the amazing privilege that you've given us to worship you. In your name I pray, amen.